right place. This is the Teen Suicide Prevention Movement, where we are making suicide, especially teen suicide, a thing of the past. Thank you for coming to the show. We are really, really happy that you're here. Whoops. There we go. I'm going to flip this right here. Dan, I want to introduce you and I want to tell everybody what's so wonderful about you and how we met and everything. And instead, I'm going to say there's an art to significance and Dan's going to take us on that journey. So thank you, Dan, for being here. I cannot hear you yet, so we're going to give you the tech moment. My pleasure. <clears throat> ah, there you go. Okay, can you move your camera just a little bit up so that we're kind of the same height? So if you can tip it a little up, otherwise I'm going to have to stand on something so that we're the same height. Just, there you go. There you go. Thank you. I do appreciate that. I like to feel tall. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those vertically challenged people, so I like this. Mm. Oh my goodness, Dan, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, I've uh, tuned in, in and out, and uh, had a chance to meet your lovely daughter, Katie, and I didn't connect the dots that she was also, you're going to have daughters talking and teaching on this show and what a wonderful family what an amazing mother you are so hold it. join all of you <laughs> hold it i gotta pause there's part of me that says amazing mother yeah we as a family dan went for a number of years decade or decade or more actually more than a decade without talking yeah i kind of caught that but I was paralyzed playing football for 14 months. 16 doctors told me I wouldn't get better. <clears throat> and now that I've recovered, clearly my accident was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Don't misunderstand. My accident wasn't one of the best things that happened to me, but <clears throat> who I became as a man and what I learned about life and time and priorities and love as a result of going through that setback clearly makes it one of the best things that ever happened. And we all know adversity is what introduces us to ourselves. And uh, we have to do certain things and learn certain lessons before we can connect at that deeper or higher physical, mental, spiritual level, especially with those whom we love. So we can't yeah. beat ourselves up when something like that happens. We have to just welcome it as a learning experience. You didn't go into the wilderness. You went through the wilderness, just like COVID-19. I'm going to ask for permission to disagree, sir. Okay, I love this already. Uh -huh. I heard you say that we all know something about adversity is where we meet ourselves. And we all don't know anything. What I know, what you know, what the other people on this show know we all know different things, but we don't all know anything. So when you say that it's through adversity that we meet ourselves, no, okay, unpack that box for people just in case I'm right, that there might be somebody listening who doesn't already know that, Dan. I love it, yeah, you're right. 
<laughs> all we can do is, um, you know, we have to, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. If everybody on this show was stuck in the same ballroom and we were looking out the same <clears throat> plate glass window at a lashing Los Angeles, California rainstorm, and one person complained what a horrible day and another person exclaimed what a wonderful day, the weather did not change. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if it rains in California, it's actually a good thing. It actually dissipates the smog. You can see what you're overpaying for. <laughs> so what we have to do is share our experiences, I believe, and try to get people to understand from our experience so that they at least momentarily can look at life through a different set of glasses, a different set of lenses, and choose if that's what they see or not. I mean, one of the things that I've really thought about as I've, you know, bounced in and out of your show for the last two days is what we call things, how we define things matters, how we react or respond to them. And I'm coming to you from my library and it's my man cave. I've, I've flown all the fighter jets, all the bombers in the air force. I've been up into space for five hours, saw the curvature of the earth. And this room is, is full of, you know, military challenge coins that are given to you from a commanding officer, a chief master sergeant for going beyond the call of duty. I have hundreds of them and I have photographs that commemorate so many of these once in a lifetime experiences. And my whole point here, Jackie, is every single one of these coins, every single one of these model airplanes, every single one of these books that I've read, every single one of these photographs triggers a story. It triggers a definition. It triggers an illumination of my understanding of life and our purpose and how do we navigate through the tough times and celebrate the good. And so in that mindset, if we can put symbols up in our home, symbols in our wallets, our our pocketbooks, symbols in our car, symbols on our refrigerator doors that immediately trigger a different mindset, we can actually strategically place them in our lives so that we can feel down, we can get down, we can get knocked down, but they're there to immediately remind us that it's okay in the end, and if it's not okay, then it's not the end. And so what we call things matters. For example, um, in the world of business, we call stress, stress. But in the world of sports, we call stress competition. In the world of leadership, we call stress urgency, where we have a deadline and we have to believe and get everybody with whom we work to believe that it's not enough to say, I will do my best. We must succeed in doing that which is necessary. So I teach public speaking. I have for the last 11 years at at an MBA program at universities. And I always teach my students, I teach anyone who wants to learn how to become a better public speaker. If before we speak, we're nervous, that means it's about us. But if we're excited, it means it's about the audience. It's about what we can share to change people's perspective so they leave saying, I like me best when I'm with you. I want to see you again. So I want to take our time to make sure that through my lenses, through my life experience, through my perspective, I can hopefully challenge the belief system of some of your listeners and literally change what they're calling this predicament or this mindset that that breaks through the limiting belief and allows them to get on with their life, which is worth living no matter what happens. All right. 
how to bust through the BS, which is one of my favorite topics, how to break a belief system, because they stink. I mean, most of the belief systems we inherited, we absorbed in our childhood, they were not positive. They were about who we could not be. And you're challenging everyone to look at this significance. And I butted up against significance only recently. And so it's a very near and dear topic to my heart. What do you mean though? When you say significance, what do you mean? All right, it all started. <clears throat> I've written 35 books and my flagship book is called, it was published, published by Penguin Random House. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's titled The Art of Significance Achieving the Level Beyond Success. And it all started in a conversation with one of my football teammates. He was drafted into the National Football League in the second round by the Philadelphia Eagles. And after two years at the Eagles, he was traded to my Oakland Raiders. And after four years in the league, playing at the highest level of Pro Bowl status, one day he walks out of practice never to play again. He quits never to play again. Why? He loved being a football player, but he hated playing football. He got what he thought he wanted, but he hated what he got. He loved the celebrity perks and the fame and fortune that allowed him to live this life called successful, which is a limiting belief that screws us all up, that's holding us back in COVID-19 that causes suicidal tendencies. Oh, oh say more. When, when we're only competing against, against others to, to create success, which is impressive, ah. we are screwing up our life. But because my buddy's inner voice and true purpose in life was misaligned with who he was and what he was trying to do, he would never live a life of significance and he would die with his music still in him. So successful people get what they think they want. And sometimes they, they, they gain the whole world and sell their soul. Mm. And significant individuals actually want what we get so that we don't die with our dreams, our goals, and our music still in us. All right. Hold it. We're going to pause right there. This attitude. By the way, you are one of the smartest, most in-depth interviewers I've ever encountered. And I've been on, you know, Oprah and Glenn Beck. I've been on 500 shows. You are amazing. Ah. <laughs> well, yeah, what I have is highly developed directive tendencies. Love it. I love it. Okay. So I'm one of those people. I have a sign in my office. I have two. On this wall, it says... I am not bossy. I just have better ideas. <laughs> and on my other wall, it says, let her sleep for when she wakes, she will move mountains. I love it. Both of those signs came into my world very recently when someone challenged me on this concept of significance. Now, what you just said about significance is a new concept. So please repeat it. You were talking about significance, meaning what? Okay, significance, success, success is getting what you think you want. And mm -hmm. significance is actually wanting what you get. Can I give a, a personal experience? Absolutely. You're, talk, you're talking about your daughters. Let me just, uh, let me just talk about one of my daughters. She's, uh, I have four very significant, amazing children. And my middle daughter is a famous singer-songwriter written with all the, the biggest names in country music. And she's been recording music and writing, you know, hits since she was 13. When she was about 19, 
she would go to Nashville, Tennessee, and because she was such an extraordinary writer, somehow the lead singing bad boys of the band would be attracted to her, and I don't understand how hormones work, but somehow she became attracted to these lead singing bad boys of the band. And as a conservative father, one of the best songs I ever wrote was called Special Man, Lyrical Hook. Any male can be a father, but it takes a special man to be a dad. So as a very conservative dad, I felt it was my responsibility to sit her down and say, hey, sweetheart, you have everything you need to get what you think you want. But at some point, don't you think you ought to pause long enough to evaluate what's going on to make sure you want what you get so you don't die with your music still in you? And it was like water off a duck's back. My words of wisdom fell on deaf ears until one day, Jackie, I had an epiphany. I said to my daughter, hey, you're like a, a dog chasing cars. And she says, daddy, I said, yeah, you're like a dog chasing cars. If the dog catches the car, what's she gonna do with the car when she catches it? Just let it drag her down a road she had not intended going down and leaving her in an emotional heap of divorce, ruined and beaten and broken on the side of the road because her core values did not align with his core values. And at the end of the day, she got what she thought she wanted, but because it wasn't what she really wanted, there's no way she could create success or happiness or enduring joy and fulfill her true purpose on this earth. All right, I just so had this, this visual of a dog biting a tire and getting whop, 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 whop on the road. Yeah. And so my question to anyone who's gone through a divorce, could it, could it be possible that you got divorced before you got married? That you sold out trying to be popular for the moment instead of respected for a lifetime. You compromised your belief system just in order to attract someone based on fantasy, not fact. And as a, in a fishing trip, once you landed the fish, once you went fishing in that particular fishing hole, going after that kind of fish, using this specific calculated bait, once you caught that fish and got him in the boat, suddenly you don't have to be cool anymore. And people say, oh, we just grew apart. We stopped growing. No, my experience and observation is you sold out before you tied the knot. Oh, and once you all cut right, the all right, all right. I, I feel like bait. I'm like being filleted on a rack in <laughs> front of the whole world. Because when my second husband asked me for a divorce after I went to college, he said he didn't know me anymore. And in that moment, I realized he had never had, actually he said, what he said was he didn't like me anymore. And what I realized is that he had never had a chance to get to know me because I had been busy being who I thought he wanted me to be or who I thought he expected me to be. And then the experience of opening my brain up, and I was in my 40s when I went to college. Wow. And at that moment, when I started like owning the fact that my brain worked differently than his did, he didn't like it. And I realized it's not that he didn't like me. He had just never had a chance to get to know me because I'd been hiding behind my ability to be a chameleon. And I think that's one of the challenges in the world today now. And with all due respect, never having met him, there's a good chance that you were at your lowest point and he was at his highest point when you met. 
Mm -hmm. Once you started to grow and, and fulfill your ultimate capacity potential as a human being and, 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 and grow into your amazingness, he had plateaued off. And let's just face it, some people have this capacity and this, this capacity. We could go into both of our kitchens today and open up. There's different size glasses. There's and what we have to understand glasses, yeah. the level of the playing field is something that I really want to get into before our time runs out. And that's suicide prevention. Because growing up, uh, one of the mantras that we raised our four amazing children with is that the only person you need to be better than is the person you were yesterday. Mm. getting in our way is competing and comparing ourselves against others and because i use the analogy of a glass let's just put things into perspective if you spend your entire day wondering if your glass is half empty or half full you've missed the point it's refillable thinking Absolutely. positively or thinking negatively doesn't fill up the glass the pouring does it's easier to act your way into positive thinking than it is to think your way into positive action so I really want to dive into suicide prevention and really help from my own perspective in any way I can. You are a guru. You flatter me. You honor me to invite me aboard. And let's see if we can change some lives. All let's right. Bring it on. Okay, let's go. Okay. When it comes to suicide prevention, Dan, I'm going to ask the tough question. What makes you qualified to talk on this topic? I'm an eyewitness. Tell me more. I, uh, I played, I, 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 I dabbled in it a little bit. And here's a chance for me to, to, to teach what I, Dan Clark, six and two, what I learned through it because you're asking me. And I would hope that some can relate or at least shift and up-level their mindset through my experience. I played football for 13 years. One day in practice, the dream ended. We had a tackling drill. Coach blew the whistle. Two of us ran into each other full speed. The only parts of our bodies that made contact, Lyle's helmet crashed into my head, my helmet in a head-on collision. My right shoulder was smashed into the cutting edge of my fiberglass pads and we slammed to the ground. And when Lyle got off of me, my eye drooped. I had loss of speech. I couldn't talk anymore. My right side was paralyzed. My arm dangled at my side. And as I would say, coach comes running over, Clark, Clark, are you all right? What happened? Rakesh, show, Rokesh, show, fama. He says, well, are you from Virginia? I'm just kidding you. He said, you better just lay there. I said, Whoa. fast forward, I stayed paralyzed for 14 months. I went to 16 of the very best doctors in all of North America. And 15 of the 16 told me I would never get any better. Mm. We have to ask the viewers, have you ever heard that? What happens if you believe it? You never get any better. Mm -hmm. And my life in one day over the course of a few weeks that lagged into a couple of months going to 16 different doctors, my life hit a fast moving downward spiral and unraveled until I, I hit what I thought was rock bottom. Oh, I like that. What you thought was rock exactly, bottom. Exactly, because that's really important to what I learned. And in that state of mind, I thought I was depressed. Now that I've recovered, I'm frequently asked a couple of questions that will illuminate what I learned from this and what makes me an expert to join your panel of experts to talk about suicide prevention. Number one, everybody wants to know why I kept going to so many different doctors. Answer, I kept going from doctor to doctor until I found one who believed I would get better. Mm. Let me interrupt. 
Belief drives everything. And I want to share a family experience. So before COVID hit, we, we love to invite our children back home, you know, as empty nesters. And we gather around our, our formal dining room and we have a feast. And there they invite several of their good friends. And when we gather together, we play a family icebreaker game called Remember When. Everybody takes a turn. I remember when I was nine, blah, blah, blah. I remember when I was 15, blah, blah, blah. Gets to my turn. I remember when I came home from high school one time with a report card that had four Fs and one T on it. My dad's response, son, looks to me like you're spending too much time on one subject. <laughs> and my mom thought I cheated. It was a tough family. We all have different memories that have molded our character and our, and our destiny. As we're going around the table, we got to my daughter's best friend. And she starts crying. She starts sobbing. My daughter puts her arm around her to console her. And I said, are you okay? And she goes, no. She said through her tears, I'm 31 years old. I... I, 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 I just got fired from my job. I just got divorced. And my mother was just diagnosed with breast cancer. And through her sob, she says, I've hit rock bottom. And in that flash of inspiration, I said, sweetheart, with all due respect, nobody ever hits rock bottom. We hit rock foundation. We hit rock belief. We hit the baseline core values on which we were raised. And in our pandemic situation, when any of our organizations think they, we think they hit a bump in the road or the economy goes south, our organizations do not hit rock bottom. They hit rock foundation. They hit the baseline governing principles on which they were built. So the question that we have to answer today on this show and every day is are your beliefs deep enough, strong enough, and true enough to equip you and empower you to respond to rapid change? And if not, why not? And if when, why not right now? All right, I'm going to bust believe. some BF. Hold it. Okay, here why we go. not is a question that never needs to be asked in my world, because I can tell you why people do anything. Okay, so I'm asking them, what are you waiting for? Because the second question I'm asked now that I've recovered from my football injury is what took you so long to recover? And the answer is, first of all, I confused who I was with what I did. Have you, I, I thought I was a football player when in reality, that's just what I did, not who I am as a man. Okay, and when that's we important and we're gonna pause on it because confusing who I am with what I do. Yeah. It's not just a guy thing anymore. I mean, this is a label thing. Oh, yeah. And I'm a firm believer that labels belong on pickle jars, not on people. Exactly. And I learned that the hard way, but I learned it and it's changed my life forever. But when we identify ourselves in terms of what we do instead of who we are, we become a human doing instead of a human being. Unacceptable of significance is what we seek. We've now got some point. feedback. Hold on. Oh. All right, it's going away. It just popped up for a minute. All right, and then, and then to the last point that I made, I thought I was depressed. Mm. Here's what I learned. I've studied enough about depression and I have enough doctors, four on my street, who, under, who help me understand when someone is clinically diagnosed with, with depression and they need medication and they definitely need non-judgmental friendship and unconditional love from all of us, a support system. 
But here's what happened to me. When I, when I was paralyzed, I didn't suddenly have a chemical imbalance. I didn't need medication. Mm -hmm. And even though I flippantly use that word to describe my condition, I'm depressed. Too many people use that definition, I'm depressed. And then those who are irresponsible in our medical world who think, well, here's the solution, here's a pill, here's, a, here's an injection, they screw up our ability to access our human spirit of flee or fight to actually rise to the occasion and respond. So, so we're going to come learned. up with a different definition. I'm going to play language with you because okay. you're fun yeah. to start with. It's, wait, let, let me just finish with this language because what I discovered that allowed me to get back up and go again, there's a huge difference between being depressed and being disappointed. There's a huge difference between being depressed and being discouraged and being sad. And if you're discouraged or disappointed or sad, you don't need medication. I was fortunate enough to have some friends who said, you can't quit. It's a league rule. What I needed to do is focus in on my passion, which is the last answer to why I'm an expert, why I was able to recover from my football paralysis, which wasn't just physical, it was also emotional. Mm -hmm. Actually, I stayed paralyzed for 14 months because I was asking the wrong questions. I was asking the doctors how to get better when I should have been asking myself why. And once we answer why, figuring out the how-to becomes clear and simple. Not easy. Hard things are important in our character development, but clear and simple. And in that conglomerate of understanding and up-leveling my mindset, anybody can recover from any condition and get back up and go again and realize suicide is not a viable solution. Okay. So we all agree that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. That's part of the discussion we've been having today. The reality is that there are certain skill sets that keep you from ever getting to the ledge. So talking yourself off the ledge is the world of intervention. The skill set that will keep you from ever getting near the ledge, that's what this show is about. Now, you've given us some amazing perspectives, this idea that there's a difference between depression and discouragement, between depression and being disappointed, between depression and being sad. And the one that I would add is that there's a difference between depression, which is biochemical, and depressing, which is a response to a situation. Brilliant. So depressing, and I can't take claim for this. Depressing is an idea that was introduced to me from a book by doc, by a Dr. Michael Michael Glasser. Um, it's an amazing book if you've never read it, and he's written a series since then. But the reality is, there are some points where we're talking about clinical depression, and as a survivor of two bouts of clinical depression. I can speak to that. It is a dark hole in the ground that after I climbed out the second time, I went on a journey to find a permanent cure for because I was more determined to stay away from that hole permanently than, I mean, that was the only thing I cared about. So the investment, my time, my talent, my treasure, my trust in multiple gurus, Anything that would keep me from ever getting near that hole again, I would try. 
Okay, so I get what clinical depression is. Everything else, you're right. It's disappointment, discouragement, sadness, and depressing. It's halts. We need to avoid being hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and sad. You know what's so and cool? We about also it? need to recognize that there are moments where we're just not ready to look at reality. And here's why, from my perspective. I heard myself say this. I was talking to someone and I said, I haven't faced it because if I ever faced it, I'd have to leave. And I'm like looking around the car because we were driving and I'm like going, oh, fuck. Did I just say that? If I ever faced it, I would have to leave. That's what happens when you come out of depressing is all of a sudden you become aware of what you already knew. Yeah, I see you smiling and nodding. All right, what is your own story? Okay, so let's just talk about that for a second. Depressing, in my mind, that has a hello and a goodbye. It has a beginning and an end. And I've been downrange eight times firing up our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. I love our troops. And obviously, because I'm so involved in our military, I'm aware of PTSD. And most folks outside of the military, they only equate PTSD with the military. Uh -oh. But the reality is, it's affected every one of us to some degree in every one of our lives. But here's the cool thing about you saying depressing, which ties into the new science on how to deal with PTSD. Number one, they've dropped the D. It's not a disorder. It's not a syndrome. Hallelujah. And, and everybody calls all oh, this something, something syndrome, this something, something syndrome. That is the biggest freaking joke I've ever seen. What oh. they're doing is trying to excuse people from taking 100% responsibility for the predicament that they're in. Hold it. I got another definition for you. Are you ready? Yeah. I, one of my daughters suffered from a chronic pain challenge for multiple years. And we were working with the highest people we could get to, like Johns Hopkins, Blasting Pain Clinic and stuff. And they said that she had this syndrome or that syndrome. And what I finally figured out was that syndrome means a collection of symptoms that no one knows what causes them and no one knows what cures them. I love it. I love it. That's so, my definition of syndrome. No, it's great. And to your point, you know, I've broken my neck, I've broken my back, I've broken my nose, my jaw. I was a state Golden Gloves box boxing champion. I've oh, had that's why hernias. we get along. <clears throat> that's funny. I've had two hernias. I've had seven surgeries on, on my knees. I'm a hot mess. Here's my point, Jackie. Every single time I went through the proper steps of rehabilitation, every part of my body that was injured became stronger than it was before I injured it. And if your knee hurts, if you've blown out your knee and you're tough, oh, I can deal with this, I can handle that, I'm too busy, and you limp so long that your back starts to hurt, and finally the pain becomes unbearable, what most people do is they go to the back doctor who can't fix anything because it's the, the knee that's hurt. So you scratch where it itches. You don't scratch your nose if your elbow hurts. So here's my point. Too many people think they're depressed. They want to kill themselves because Julie put John in that friend zone. He's got a belief problem. It's not because Julie put him in the friend zone. He's got to have a deeper conviction of the purpose of life. 
right, so we're going to box this. This is so amazing. Because when we start dealing, when we start dealing with PTSD and drop the D and the syndrome and the and the and the and the and the. We're dealing with post-traumatic stress. You were yeah, in a place right. where you could not process emotion in the moment. Exactly. Like my vets who were trapped in caves. Okay. You know, if they took a breath, they were going to die. So their muscles couldn't move in the moment and the body stores the emotion. So post-traumatic anything, by the way, I call that PETA. It's the name of one of my elephants. You know, post-traumatic anything. And for people who've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress syndrome, I'm going to say, this is not disrespectful. And I just have to go there, Dan, because I got challenged for this. Yeah, but the new science, I've read up on it. The new science is it's not a syndrome, it's not a disorder. We need to look at it as an injury. That's why I brought up my list of injuries because if you look at, at post-traumatic stress as an injury, mm -hmm. if you look at depressing as an injury, if you look at you know losing your job, going through a devastating divorce, the loss of a loved one, and you look at it as an injury, every injury, remember what I said, if we go through the proper steps of rehabilitation, Every, Every body, injury can be recovered our, from. Including our attitude and our heart, we can recover from and it becomes stronger than it was before we injured it. So we have got to start talking to people who think they're depressed, who think they've hit rock bottom and elevate their belief system, help them understand that if Julie puts you in the friend zone or you're so far in debt, you don't know what to do, you don't end your life and complete your suicide. What we have right. to do is fix what is actually broken. And it's not Julie not loving you. There's something so much more critically important that you've got to understand and believe about the purpose of life so that it's Julie's loss, not yours. So Dan, Here's what I know to be true. The minute I tell someone what they have to do, they check out. And okay. as, as an owner of highly developed directive tendencies, I have a statistical universe of this happening. So how do you recommend that we invite people into a conversation where they might be willing to challenge their belief systems? Well, we have to, the, the definition of sales is the transference of trust. And in every relationship and in every conversation, bottom line, we're engaging in sales. We're trying to get someone to buy our philosophy, buy our insight, buy our experience. Or buy the restaurant that we want to go to dinner at. Exactly. So the transference of trust is so critically important. And in my eyewitness account, when I was paralyzed, Jackie, I had so many people, I knew they cared. I had so many people come up to me and say, I know what you're going through. And I used to think, you don't have a flipping clue. Psychologists teach us that the average person talks between 100 and 200 words a minute. And yet we think between 200 and 400 words a minute, which means no one ever knows everything that we feel. No one ever knows everything that we think. No one ever knows everything that we want to say. The author Thoreau was right when he wrote, men lead lives of quiet desperation. <sighs> so what we have to do is find someone who we absolutely trust who knows who's walked in our shoes, who's been where we've been. And I made a decision to take my life. I had a plan intact. I was actually in the, the, the process and caught the vision that my belief system kicked in that this isn't gonna eliminate pain. 
anyone who wants to take their lives, all they want is the pain to go away. They really don't want to die. They don't want to hurt themselves. They want the pain to go away. Well, okay, so that and is you statistically true. Pain, after you complete your suicide, you're in more pain than you were before you did. When you believe that, it's amazing how that could curtail and get you to at least re-examine for another 15, 30 minutes, two days, five years, whatever. Okay, the reason that this show is 24 hours, because your longest day is only 24 hours long. That's why we do a 24-hour summit. Your longest day is only 24 hours long. So watching, binge watching, this is the one show I invite people to binge watch. I love it. And this is the reason why, is because what if one idea turned it around? What if this idea that you could absolutely decide what you believe? What if you were the one who got to decide what was true? What would you, oh my God, this is my favorite. What if you were the one who got to decide what was good enough and you decided that everything you've done in your life up to this moment was good enough? What would happen? Exactly, and in the words of one of my songs, the hook, hold on in two more days, tomorrow's yesterday. Oh, wait a minute, I got an idea. We have to get connections so that we get some of your songs and some of your lyrics because I don't know your songs. I mean, I know you through the speaker organization that we're both a member of. So this idea that there's a song that says, hold on, because in 48 hours, tomorrow will be your yesterday. That's a great idea. What if, what if, Dan? we could just get people to pause long enough to take a deep breath. And this is timely because when I launched and I started doing the promotion for this particular summit, I started getting pushback. I had pushback from people who believe that suicide prevention is their daily fight because they are suffering from depression. They are clinically depressed and they are every day is a struggle not to act on their suicidal thoughts. And I got pushback from people who objected to me putting fun and suicide prevention into the same sentence, where my belief system is that if you're having fun, that is preventing you from ever going near the ledge. I mean, you know, no one is having fun goes over there. And I started getting emails from people who were listening to the first few segments and they started telling me their stories. And the reality is the quiet desperation, oh my God, you would have thought Thoreau was predicting what we're dealing with now. I don't know if you saw this, but today on the Today Show, they released the Center for Disease Control's latest numbers. And according to the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, June of 2020, 11% of the population of the United States is struggling with suicidal thoughts. 
this is two times, this is double the number from two years ago in 2018. But what was telling to me was not that it was double, but imagine if you looked around your life, how you know, gathered 10 people that you know and love into one space and then realize the reality that one of them is on the ledge and you don't know which one and you don't have time to figure out which one because by the time you sort it out, they could have jumped. So what if you were willing to start a conversation with all of them? Because you don't know whose life you're going to save. Yep, I agree. May I add to that? Absolutely. So remember what I said earlier, it's easier to act your way into positive thinking than it is to think your way into positive action. You can tell someone, don't kill yourself. You can tell, you can ask someone that, are they having suicidal thoughts? Do you know you're, you know, we can have all the conversations we want. And as soon as they leave us, the only place, <laughs> no, it's like the country song, no matter where you go, there you are. A geographic relocation doesn't fix anything. Yeah, we've been having that conversation earlier today. So here's my solution. So I was in the Reagan White House, and I took Mrs. Reagan's Just Say No program to all 50 states. Between 83 and 89, I spoke in thousands and thousands of high schools, junior highs, middle schools, to millions of teenagers, all 50 states. And at that same time frame in our country, we had a suicide pandemic. And I was on the tip of the spear of the prevention programs that we were taking to all the schools at the same time. And I shared the program many, many times with a woman by the name of Charlotte Ross from San Mateo, California, the national co-chairperson for suicide prevention. And to put it into perspective so I can teach all of the, the viewers what I learned, which is the secret, it's the solution, guaranteed solution. Visualize the time frame. Uh, East Plano East High School, they had six suicides in, in, in their high school in one day, seven in the same week. I was flown to the, to the shore of New Jersey, Ocean Township, Asbury Park, Long Branch. They had suicides in a day and a half. One of my offices was in Stanford, Connecticut. Year in and year out, Greenwich, Connecticut is the highest per capita county in the entire country, always lead the country in teenage suicides. I was flown into Dubuque, Iowa. I won't tell you the name of the high school, 2,000 students. I was flown into town with Charlotte Ross and the 2,000 students in the school, they had 2,000 students. And in the 30 days prior to us coming to their school, they had 100 suicide attempts. One young lady died, beautiful head cheerleader, the rest survived. When we came into the school, Charlotte Ross took charge. She took 1,000 of the students into the theater. She did a left brain cognitive psychobabbling neurotechnical facts and figure stuff. I took the other half of the student body into the gymnasium and I did the relational right brain touchy feely storytelling laugh and crying stuff. We swapped audiences, repeated our performance to the best of our ability. And at the end of the day, we invited in the healthcare professionals, the school counselors, the school administrators, and we personally interviewed every single one of these students, 99 students who had attempted suicide and survived. Every single one of them told us that the reason why they wanted to die was because they lacked commitment relationships in their lives. So let me quickly just define, take us in a different direction to define what a commitment relationship is. Mm -hmm. Love, you know, love is a commitment, not a way of feeling. Romance is not love. Romance comes from a Greek word that means erotic. So I don't even want to talk about it. Mm 
Yeah, not with teenagers. We could be there forever. But if I love you because you're beautiful, that's romance. If you're beautiful because I love you, that's real love. It's a value creating love and it inspires us to be the best that we can possibly be. Yet how many of us confuse love commitment with romance emotion? What have we said our whole lives? Oh, I love her so much. She makes me feel differently than I've ever felt before. Oh, I love him so much. He makes me feel differently than I've ever felt before. I'll hold it. Go do breakfast burritos. Yeah, you know, country music. You make me yeah. feel like a natural exactly. woman. I mean, this so is the emotional is, remote control syndrome. My whole point is I love you means absolutely nothing unless we back it up with action. Hmm. So the, the three most powerful words in this world in relationships are not I love you. They are I need you. Let me give you an example. I got into music in a very interesting way. I've written songs forever, but I never had the courage to sing in public until one of my good friends, Jeff Soderberg, decides he's going to get married. He phones me up, Clark, will you write a song from my wedding? I said, sure. He said, will you sing it? I said, no. In the next few minutes, he convinced me that we were best friends, that we went back a long ways, that it would be cool if I participated with him in his special day. He basically made me feel important. I couldn't turn him down. I said, all right. Two days later, he phones me back, Clark, the band just called and canceled. Could you prepare about 40 or 50 songs and play for the whole wedding reception? I said, no. He said, I need you. What a jerk. Had he said, I love you, I would have said, I love you. Oh, why'd you call him a jerk for pushing your buttons? Yeah, I would have said, I love you too. Here's the number of a band. But because he said, I need you, he made me feel like I was not just good. I was good for something that this little weird shaped puzzle piece could really contribute in a positive way. Hear me, here's the conclusion. Wedding reception finally rolls around on his calendar. He makes a big deal out of my first little love song. Sat on my stool, sang my song. Everybody's crying. They just first start to have the refreshments, start to socialize. I sang the first song out of the 40 or 50 songs that I had practiced and prepared. And all of a sudden, the band shows up. Realistically, I'm no longer needed. So why hang around? I help him set up all of their equipment. Now, you think about this for a moment. When I arrived at that wedding reception, I arrived with the attitude in mind that I was needed. I would have stayed till four o'clock in the morning if necessary. I would have waited tables. I would have wiped tables. I would have swept the floor. Somebody spills. I wouldn't have waited for a custodian. I had ownership. Give me the mop. I'd clean it up. I would have, I would have sung a hundred songs if necessary. I would have made some up. But the second the band shows up, realistically, I am no longer needed. So why hang around? And I left the wedding reception. That is the message coming through loudly and clear from everyone who's having a suicidal thought engaged in suicidal tendencies. And it's the exact answer that we got from every single one of these 99 students in Dubuque, Iowa, who had attempted suicide and survived. Every single one of them told us they knew they were liked, they knew they were loved, but they didn't believe they were needed. And when we don't feel like we're needed, why hang around? So my contribution to your show is, are you needed? And let me give you my own personal experience. Because of the nature of our society, which all of us have helped create, we cannot afford to wait for somebody else to tell us or show us that we are loved or needed. It might not ever happen. Two years ago, I spoke 202 times, all 50 states, 21 countries. And never once did anyone ever come up to me after my speech and say, how are you, Dan? They don't care. So what am I supposed to do? Just go back to my hotel room, feel sorry for myself, guess nobody likes me, guess I'll, I'll just go eat worms, no. I have to do something on a daily basis to prove to myself that I'm needed. So the kicker word in, 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 in commitment relationships is to participate more 
get involved. If you don't feel like you're needed at school, participate more. Get involved instead of you feeling sorry for yourself. If you don't feel like you're needed in your children's lives, participate more. Get involved. If you don't feel like you're needed in our community, in our country, participate more. Get involved. So it's not enough for us to just engage in these conversations, these crucial conversations. My experience and my recommendation is to have these conversations with a plan that now we are going together find someone and a group and a cause to go and serve. And as we serve others and have a focus on service before self with integrity and a commitment to excellence in all we do, we at the end of the day will not dive ourselves, ourselves, dive ourselves, push ourselves into that low place that we are calling depression. With all due respect, yes, there are people who are clinically depressed and they need medication. But most people out there are just flippantly and recklessly using that word depression to define what they're feeling. And I'm saying, get a dream. Surround yourself with positive people and fire up. All right, so we're gonna put one pause here and we're gonna say the purpose of medication for someone who is clinically depressed is the same purpose for medication for someone who is diagnosed with ADHD, especially adult ADHD. The purpose is to put a pause in place so you can learn the skills to manage your life without medication. I love That's it. the whole purpose. I didn't create this philosophy for ADHD, but I am a big proponent of it, especially when it comes to this concept of mental health diagnoses. I don't care what it is. The purpose of being on medication is to learn the skills so you can manage your life without medication. Medication is an intervention, not a lifestyle. And I love it because of your powerful word that's transformed my life forever. It's not depression, it's depressing. It actually is an injury that, from which we can recover. I love this. Yeah, we're going to have more conversations, Dan. This was a lot of fun, and I greatly appreciate you donating your time, being willing to show up, because trust me, we swim in the same ocean. I know what your speaker fees are. So, you know, having your time as part of this movement is pretty close to priceless. Yeah, I mean, just make you. one comment because I honor and love you in the same way. So I've spoken over 6,000 times in 71 countries and I've never missed a speech. I want everybody to know why I'm not noble. Oh, Dan, you're so wonderful. So responsible. So conscientious. Mm, yeah. I've never missed a speech, Jackie, because I believe and the reason why I volunteered my time to be on this program. I, I don't just believe, I know Jackie that there's at least one man and one woman in every single one of my audiences who is hurting as badly as I was, who's confused as much as I was about life and death and purpose and meaning and eliminating pain. Remember the two major causes of suicide are hopelessness and lack of human connection. Social distancing is what's attacking all of us and all of our personal relationships right now. And the, the highest spike of suicide year in and year out is April, May, and June. We're in the midst of just coming out of that. And then you share the statistics on the Today Show. I've never missed a speech. I've had flights canceled. I've had weather conditions where I've had to rent a car and drive seven hours one way. Because I know 
that there's at least one man or one woman in every one of my audiences who needs just that little laugh, that little ray of hope, that, that mindset shift that basically says, as I said, in two more days, tomorrow's yesterday. That today you've never been this old before and today you'll never be this young again. So right now and every right now matters, which means no matter what your past has been, you have a spotless future, which means you can't always control what happens, but you can always control what happens next. Two more days, tomorrow's yesterday. We have got to reach out one person at a time. I love you. I honor you, Jackie. We need to have this every day because of what you're saying in the binge. Maybe somebody just stumbled onto this program and they were that close, close to leaving their spouse, that close to completing their suicide, that close to doing something drastic. And all we need is 15 minutes longer and someone to say, it's gonna be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. There we go. It's going to be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. And we have a boatload of resources now in this movement, the suicide prevention movement. I mean, we have fun activities, you know, the ballpark theory. We have getting out of shouldville. How do you stop shooting on yourself and others? We have how to get to know, like, and trust yourself what's your score and how to raise that score just a little bit. And when all else fails, we've got the why not workbook. You know, why not kill myself today? This is how to break the negative cycle of thinking in the brain. I mean, we've also got emotional elephants. Oh my God, this is the self-assessment that's totally anonymous and totally free. So you can figure out, am I depressed or am I just down? Am I suffering from anxiety, which is another one of those diagnoses, or am I just worried? So there's all of these tools available in our portal. So reach out. And Dan, between the two of us, I think maybe we reached one person today. And if we didn't reach them today, we'll reach them on the podcast. And if we don't reach them on the podcast, we'll reach them on the YouTube channel. And if we don't reach them there, well, you know, we'll just have you come back on the next show. How does that sound? You know, they can, uh, they can like me on uh, Facebook and Instagram, just Dan Clark speak. Keep in touch with me. Join my tribe. I, uh, well, you gave this amazing gift that we have popped into the chat box, which is the speak.danclark.com lead, sports slash lead. So you have offered an amazing leadership tool. And let's face it, true leadership is not the person who says, follow me, follow me, follow me. In my world, true leadership is the person who says, I'll go first. I love it. And my little quote is, I love to write quotes. The purpose of a leader is to grow more leaders who believe what you believe, not generate more followers. So what we have to do is understand the law of attraction. I'm the primary contributor and author of all the chicken soup for the soul books. And so I'm always asked about the law of attraction. We don't attract who we want. We attract who we are. We attract what we believe we deserve. And because we become the average of the five people we associate with the most, we must choose our friends wisely. We must be willing to pay any price and travel any distance to associate with extraordinary human beings, including online with Jackie Simmons. 
<laughs> we are so going to have fun with this. And one of the reasons we're going to have fun with this is this whole concept of we are similar to the five people we hang around. So yeah. that'll be another discussion. Love to have you on my podcast. Good. Love to continue the conversation. Dan, thank you for being you and thank you for showing up. Thanks. And publicly, I love Katie. I honor your daughter. What a, what a class lady. We laughed. She's brilliant. She's your tech. And, uh, and that just proves, proves our point that you can connect online. We need to stay connected. We're social beings. And because social distancing is one of the major reasons for our spike in suicides, we have got to fix that by connecting. And we're laughing. We're talking. We're connecting eye to eye, heart to heart. You know, who cares if we're looking into a little green dot on a screen? We still have to stay connected. And I want to stay connected with everyone on this program. And you honor me and you flatter me. I, I'm, I, I can't say no to you. So I'm so grateful you didn't ask me for a new car. <laughs> oh, oh, hey, Dan, I need a new car. That's funny. Actually, I'm, I'm one of those weird people. I don't own a car. So we could talk because, yeah, I could use a car. Um, I own a, I own a used car dealership. That's why I don't personally own a car, just so everybody knows. Um, but yeah, so we'll have another conversation. Okay. Thank you for being you and okay. thank you for showing up. And again, please like me, follow me on Insta. I'd love to stay in touch. That would mean more to me than you'll ever know. All the links are in the show notes for everyone and your gift for everyone who showed up is here. Your amazing gift for people who come into the very inspiring person level. You know, I mean, Dan, we met, I asked, you said yes, and amazing things have happened since then. It was so easy. I just want to encourage everyone to ask for what you want.